0: winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 50th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Errid. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. I hope this finds you well. This episode features a chat with Richard Kellett of Arras Mains here on Mull. Originally from the Borders. Richard is one of Mull's paramedics. He's led quite a remarkable life, having been in the army, seeing service in Iraq during the Second Iraq War. Many people in the islands here will know him from his work with the ambulance service, his time as a manager at Umbeerling, and several other incarnations. It was a real honour to spend this time with Richard, and I thought it important to make his episode the 50th, as he and the team that he's part of do so much to make our lives here better and safer. At this time, more than ever. This episode delves a bit deeper into personal areas than other episodes so far. So, it's worthwhile giving you a couple of trigger warnings for when we talk about, firstly, the difficult situations that Richard was subject to as a child, and then certain aspects of the reality and politics of active service in a war zone. The particular moment I'm thinking of happens about 20 minutes into the episode, just over 20 minutes into the episode, after... Richards talked about the officer training group that he was part of. I've put some links to some supporting information on the website if you find that you need them. I think it's really important to identify that these episodes are about people's lives more than a nostalgic bubble of what life was like in the past. And if you're interested in the rationale behind the project, I've put a few words in at the end of the episode to frame what I'm trying to do, which may be of interest, but don't worry if it's not. Due to the current lockdown situation, we recorded our chat over the internet. That's why there's the odd bubble and pop here and there. That and the fact that I was enjoying a nice fizzy glass of Cromola foam as I recorded the chat. Or was I? It was great to spend time with my mate Richard. None of us are getting to see the folk that we want to spend time with at the moment, so it was great to have a good laugh with them as we chatted. And I've cut out the rude bits, Richard, you don't need to worry. The Islands and Film project is now in the edit, and I'm hoping to be able to share that with you in the next week or so. It's coming together in a very interesting way, and I can't wait to share it with you. And thank you to everyone who sent footage in. There were 212 bits of footage running over two and a half hours in total. So I'm going to try and get it down to about half an hour, 45 minutes. And I've got music from Hannah Fisher and Soren McLean to accompany the film. So that's really something to look forward to. At several moments in the episode, I use rude words. You'll hear the word shite at least twice. Shite. No mentions of the words bag" or fud. So I repeat... This episode will not feature the words neither ball bag nor fud. I hope this chat gives you an hour away from the world. I'll be back at the end of the episode with a few more havers than usual. And now, it's with great pleasure for the 50th episode that I hand you over to Richard Kellett. <laughs> Who are you?
1: I'm Richard Kellett. uh I live on Mull, and at the moment I'm working for the ambulance service.
0: Whereabouts are you on Mull, Richard?
1: So I'm at Aris Mains, um, just in the Stedons' cottages at Aris Mains.
0: Can you describe the situation uh, at Aris Mains? How, how where does it sit in terms of the island? Where does it sit in terms of the view? Where does it sit in terms of the history as well? Oh, so so
1: we're absolutely. I'm so lucky to live live here, really. Um, so we're quite central to the island, um, quite close to Salon, a couple of miles away, and Tobermory about 10 miles away up the roads. The house is situated about 200 metres from the sea, mm-hmm. and then we've got hills at the back and a river down the road. Um so it's just absolutely perfect, really, Have a place to live and bring up a family. It's great.
0: You see the Von Trapp family singers roaming around <laughs> quite frequently.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, not quite, but, you know... Um. <laughs>
0: In terms of the the castle beside you, how conscious are you of that castle's presence in your daily life?
1: Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, it's it's absolutely fabulous to have it there. To have 14th century castle, you know, just on your doorstep is amazing. Mm. Um, and, I, and I love the link up with Jewett, um, you know, and the signalling side of things from you know communicating from along the along the sound of of someone's presence coming or yeah. Yeah, my signal fires and that. So I, that, that's really cool. Um, and Yeah, we're, we're, you know, Evie and I are always in, in there playing about, and you know, so it's brilliant.
0: Have you ever found any kind of old bits of things kicking about, like old sort of flints or I, anything like that?
1: I I wish, I wish. Um, just um, old bits of cars and stuff like the rest of them all, you know. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, but no, um, I think it's been... Uh, detected uh to hell so yeah. a- everything that's any use is out um i'd love to find something but no yeah. sadly not
0: it's got a magic presence that place it's quite uh, it's it the way it sits is amazing Of course um uh, kidnapped that's where um in the book kidnap that's why Davy Balfour <laughs> and Alan Breck go round by the Torren Rocks because yeah. they would have been so- seen if they'd gone down the sound and investigated and uh, and, and yeah. kidnap would have been Good. much shorter so yeah no
1: it's a really commanding kind of position and it's yeah, it's great um you know i feel really lucky Aye. to
0: even be near it totally yeah. so where um where were you born so
1: I was born in Hexham um, oh, really? in England, yeah, Tyne and Wear. But I was only there for about six months before I uh, moved up to the Borders. Um, yep. So
0: yeah. Hexham's a lovely place. I uh, worked there quite a lot over the years. Um, yeah. What What were you folks doing in Hexham?
1: Um, so my mum was a nurse, um, mm-hmm. and my 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 biological father, um, he I think he worked in a, in a crystal factory. Right. Um, I've never actually met him, so okay. they they um, they set um, separated um, when I was about uh, three or four months old, um, and then yeah, I've never never managed to get hold of him. I've tried to contact him, but it's never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, yeah, another mystery, indeed.
0: And uh, so you then went to the borders. Now I'm fascinated by the borders because there's in terms of Scottish history. Obviously, so much happens in the borders, but they're so there are the mainstream knowledge of Scottish history is it doesn't focus on that at all, particularly. But you look at the work of Alistair Moffat, who's a great writer. He wrote the Border Reavers books and different other history, different histories of borders. He he's brilliant and going into the depth of this the bit that in in ways it kind of defines so much of Scotland because it's this border in between England and mm-hmm. Scotland. It's it's its own territory. So what? What was growing up in the Borders like? Whereabouts were you first?
1: Um, So I was quite near, just north of Berwick-upon-Tweed. So we're actually in Berwick-upon-Tweed for a few years, um, very near the the walls of Berwick, which are obviously pretty um, historic and, and amazing. And I think you really felt the... The conflict um because because of the, the castle and the and the walls. Um and it cha- you know, it changed hands I think thirteen times between England and Scotland. Oh God. Um and yeah, so you really and, and and it was a very, very interesting town. It was quite divided in a way. You had yeah. the kind of your Scottish barricades and your English barracks, but it was always quite well balanced and with humour and yeah. you know, there was quite a lot of kind of banter about it. Um but um, you, you certainly you, you felt it um, yeah. there, you know, very very interesting. And again, you know, geographically, with the with the Tweeds running through it, and you know, it's an interesting place. Um, yeah. I, I really enjoyed growing up there. It Was um, yeah. from a geographical perspective, uh, it was a nice place. And yeah. I, I guess, yeah, I I, I feel you know I, I feel a link to the kind of border river thing as well. Yeah. Feel that's kind of um, not necessarily inspired me, but shaped me a little bit. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's just me being a wee man and a bit angry, but uh...
0: <laughs> with a, yeah. a short blunt sword. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there any way you would define uh, the borders identity, or that? But I mean, there must be thousands of borders d- identities. Is that that East Coast borders uh, identity? How does that? Dif- how is that different from a say like someone over the other side in the West?
1: It's interesting because I think when when I moved away from the borders, I you know like, you know like being a teenager and want to escape home and yeah. es- escape your parents that's just quite normal and and often you're just happy to to have fled. But but um, a few years ago, I was fortunate enough to go back and work um, when I was doing my events and mm. and w- what came through was actually. There's quite a soft side to the borders, and there's quite a lot really? of care, which is a is a bit of a link actually with the West Coast as well. There's a softness there as well, and it's quite on the surface in right. in the borders, which I, in, in other places, you know, you've got to kind of bash through a couple of layers of of hardness to get through to that. But yeah. um, I I really found yeah I was actually quite surprised how friendly people were, and I think for, I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah. Um, so. You know this—that kind of um, love, love and kind of hate warrior type mentality. It's you know it's, it seems to affect the culture there in terms of the people. Anyway, there's there's so much there um, historically, in it, and there's a there's a lot of physical manifestations still there. There's. You know Ford and Etol and and all the kind of battle sites are still quite visible and and easy to see. So it's it, you're surrounded by it.
0: Which one? I don't know Etol or Ford. Which ones were they? What happened then? Were they kind of?
1: Um, well, f- well, I guess Flo- like Flodden was. Oh you yeah, Flodden. Oh well, so, yeah. So. Um, but there were kind of other smaller battles round eat which is in, in on the English side now, right? Uh, which didn't go too well for, for the Scots, I think. But uh, yes. we got a bit of a hiding uh, in these these places. But Fortin for yeah. me
0: is still becoming a great. Uh great tragedy of of, well one of the great tragedies of scottish stuff like james the fourth to me is just an absolute hero he was he was a a dirty rogue (laughs) he was a linguist of all sorts of amazing abilities he was cultured beyond belief it showed the potential of scotland's connection to europe particularly amongst other things yeah so what would what would you do for fun when you were younger in berwick what would you what were the, the fun things to do through different ages
1: I've I've always had an, a hankering for the out, outdoors, that so I have to kind of mention that we, we we were in the in the town of Berwick for a number of years, and then we moved out to a wee um, village called Eastwards, and then we moved further um, north, closer to the border. When I lived in a place called High Letham. oh yeah, and I, I mean, so I, I have a, a half sister who's five years um, younger than me. Um, but I, I spent a lot of time on my own, um, yeah. you know, uh, taking the BMX out and going down to the river, chucking stones. And my mum had uh, had a horse as well, so I did a wee bit of horse riding. Um, but it was always climbing trees, outdoors. I was never really drawn to the city and I always yeah. wanted to be out. Um, and and that still affects me now, definitely. So,
0: yeah. yeah. No is about it, no um City life has its place without a shadow of a doubt, but uh, I, I, yeah, I really do appreciate rural life, particularly at this moment in time as well. Yeah, so, absolutely.
1: Yes. We're really lucky.
0: Right. So you, um, when did you leave the borders to set off on your own? So I
1: went to school and I, I actually finished in a private school, um, mm. Longish Towers School. It was I, I dragged my carcass to be the head boy. Oh, my goodness. Uh, which, wow. which is a bit of a turn up to the books. I guess I've always been a good bluffer. so <laughs>
0: <laughs> A merited position, I'm sure. <laughs> it, it,
1: it, must, it must have been that. Um, and then I ended up leaving when I was 18 to go to university at Harriet Watt. Mm. To be honest, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I had an interest in computing and technology and i ended up starting a computer science degree knowing very little about it and just hating it oh no it. um oh. there was loads and loads of maths in the course and my maths is not the best no i ended up having to move on from that and, ch- and change my degree and extend my degree by a year and right. ended up um doing business management in the end at harriet Watts
0: very useful though that's i'm sure yeah that's come in handy since i'm sure but
1: uh well i think it's um a a degree when you don't know what really what you're up to just pick business management and crack on uh, exactly yeah
0: Uh, (laughs) i was talking to a pal yesterday um uh, who was had uh, done uh, theatre studies uh, at university as well down in England, and I was saying how many of your folk actually work in <laughs> work in theatre still well, maybe a couple. It's like there's only about three of us from <laughs> from uh, from. Our, <laughs> yeah. There's some courses you should be told now if you want a mortgage, this is not the degree for you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, all right, So what? Um, computer science. What made, What got you into computer science? What was? What was it? The, how did you start? Were you on the ZX Spectrum? Were you on the the oh, Dragon?
1: Commodore sixty four absolutely the, the the um the intelligent man's choice of uh i think so <laughs> of um, 1980s computers oh,
0: bionic uh, commando all the way i think you'll find yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um i and you know i, did, I just you know I, i've always been interested in technology mm. and 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 my parents brought me a pc and mm. and it just you know i was interested in the in the the kind of low-level it side yeah. and when it went Crazy into software engineering and maths. It was. It just blew my mind. Uh, My very small mind. It got blown away. My entire childhood and up to the point I went to university. My my dream and my goal was to be a fighter pilot.
0: Oh, nice.
1: Yeah. So I used to love living in the borders. It was a kind of local low flying route and. I used to love watching the jets get past, and um, so I still had that very much as a goal. Yeah. And I, I joined the university air squadron, um, and I was actually sponsored at school by the RAF, and I did um, twenty hours of flying. Wow. Um, sponsored by the RAF before I went to university, and ended up having um, being solo in a car and solo in a plane before I was in a car. So.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah,
1: that, that was pretty cool as a kind of seventeen-year-old. Um, yeah. So I took that with me to Edinburgh with the thought of a career in the RAF. Yeah. Um, uh, really, but I wanted to get a degree as well. And, it, and it also when you join the military, it actually helps your promotion as an officer to, to have a degree behind you. So I guess, yeah, that was the loose link to, yeah. to, do, to doing, doing something academic. So um,
0: what, what was that like, that, <clears throat> that sensation of being solo in a plane? I'm, like your first time flying on your own at 17, what was that like?
1: Oh, it was it, w- it was just mega it was absolutely it was a dream come true yeah. for me. My first flight was you basically um just do a circuit of the airfield and come back down to land again yeah um and you know you was so so nervous um yeah. absolutely you know yeah. terrified really um to go out and do that and manage to do quite well and land and you know not make a mess of the plane and end up yeah. on your on your roof you know yeah. um so so I did that and then the the second flight. Um, which was a couple of days after. This was at Dundee right. uh, uh, Airfield. Yeah, so uh, second flight was a, a bit of a cross country flight, and I was—I think it was flying about two or three thousand feet. And two tornadoes from uh um, wow. uh came underneath me and then pulled up. Um and kind of overtook me. I was doing 100 knots and they were probably doing 600. Oh my uh, goodness! And gave me a little a little wing wave and it was like the the new. Oh, and, that's and awesome! It was, just, it was it was like Top Gun. Top Gun is just uh, yeah. flying past me. Um, oh. And yeah, it was it was amazing. Uh, and I, you know, it 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 just enhanced the whole um, dream uh, yeah. for me. So I went to university. I went into the air squadron. Um, And then had this eye test at the end of the year. I'd passed one of these before and I very much expected to pass it. And, you know, unfortunately I didn't. Um, So they said, oh, we're not sure what's happened here, but we need need you to go and have a specialist exam here down in London, which I did, and it was inconclusive. And then I went to see the the top kind of optometrist from, from the military in the UK, and he basically said no. Um, it was too touch and go right. um, uh, for me to do that, and and my my life just crashed. Um, yeah, of course, the the dangers of having too much fixation on one thing yeah. really came came home to roost, and I went off the rails. So I just yeah, yeah twenty four cans of skull later, it was there.
0: Uh, oh my <laughs> god! Oh jings.
1: Uh You know, uh, it was a a bit of a you know a bit of a blow.
0: Of course. Um, Gosh, and what was the was it a macula problem or something with the eye or was it? Uh...
1: Um, it was it it was it's actually. I mean, I've got 20/20 vision. However, yeah. it was I've 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 got a bit of a squint, basically that All kind right. of manifests itself, um, in low light. Um, yeah. so my eye starts to wander in low light, and they weren't happy with that for yeah. obvious reasons. I guess <laughs> you don't have to be flying about. It. It's Mac 2 and,
0: and the uh, scaly uh, eye, yeah. I, oh, well, I'd
1: say, I thought it'd be useful. I could scan for the enemy with one it's, eye and look over the colour, it's <laughs> totally. like a
0: chameleon. It's widescreen uh, vision, mate. <laughs> they they,
1: they weren't up for it, they weren't
0: up for it. It's 24 24, not 20 <laughs> 20. <laughs> I. Oh, jings! I well, it's uh, our wee man has a, <laughs> has a squint as well. And when it comes out when he's tired, and it's lovely because you quite frequently catch him when he's brushing his teeth at the end of the night. If he looks in the mirror, one eye goes, yeah. Habaya yeah, 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 yeah. After the state, <laughs> what, what have you been drinking, Cole? Exactly. Yes, yeah. Just just Colgate. Um, but yeah, the, um, the French have a saying for that, which I think is amazing, which is "un eye qui dit merde à l'autre." One eye which is shite to the other. <laughs> which, <laughs> which so when I was a, a, a living in Paris, I'd, I'd never seen a picture of Jean Paul Sartre before. I'd come across his work, but I'd never seen a picture of him before. And I thought, "Whoa, who's this guy?" And, it's, and somebody said to me, ah, he's got one eye that says shite to the other." I was, what? <laughs> so, um, it's mad, but what you've said there, there's such an expression of community in that as well and that you're in the air alone but you're not alone because you've got the you've got Top Gun and, and um, Gooseman going past you and you know uh, just that must have been yeah really really upset. so how how did you come to terms with that apart from the help of our Danish uh beer friend <laughs> um
1: Oh, God, it, it was tough, I think, because I'd focused, you know, literally from the age of three oh till kind of 19 it would have been um, by now, that was my focus. So it was hard. Um, at that point, I'd moved out of the halls of residence at Harriet watt and I'd moved into Edinburgh City yeah. um, with a couple of Northern Irish lads and right. a guy from Aberdeen one of them was actually going to join the army and he was in the kind of army's equivalent of the air squadron, which was called the officer training Corps. And he said, why don't you come along? And I said, you oh, no, I'm not interested in that army rubbish. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not doing that. And he, anyway, he kept nipping away at me. You, I think he was just trying to help me because yeah. you could see I was in a bit of turmoil and, you know, everything I knew was basically falling down around me. Yeah. I went and it was a little bit of a kind of, um, Middle class drinking club, um, right? Yes. <laughs> to be honest, but um, I really, I, I got a lot out of it. I, I did, and you know the, the physical side of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed, and the people side of it kind of got me. Um, to be honest, where whereas to me, although the the, the equipment, the you know mm-hmm. the RAF to me is more about the plane than the yeah. person. Um, and when I've been through the air, the officer training corps, you know, it was more about it was more about people. It was all about people. Um,
0: in which way? Um, How was it? Sort of building a group together? Was it about um, seeing each other's strengths or working as teams? What What was it in in that way?
1: At, at the office side of things, it was more about leadership. You know, right. it was, um, which and I, I think I I kind of took to it because because of the physical nature of it, and yeah. I was pretty strong and fit, and I'd done all this kind of outdoor stuff as a child. You know, I just you know, leading by the front in a kind of physical way was just absolutely natural to me, um, and you know, I just I found it easy and mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it, and and the harder it got, the 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 better I seemed to cope with it. Fantastic. Um, partly because of my, you know, a, a link back to my childhood and having a bit of a tough time as yeah. a child um, dealing with various things, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had a kind of. A, a, a gritty kind of hardness, um, which had developed. That um, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't let anything get on top of me. If uh, yeah. physical, physical wise, um, uh, if it was hard, I would just push harder against it. Um, yeah. Which it doesn't work all the time, but <laughs> in the army, it, it, it helped.
0: Earlier in life, you had uh, a tough, a tougher time. Is it okay to go into that and then say maybe how you found a route out of that as well? In case that there's someone listening who may be experiencing similar things and, and not know a landscape of how to get out of it or or anything like that at all. How, what if it's okay? It's I know this is deeply personal, so thank you very much for for your candour in this. But
1: no problem, Alistair. Yeah. So when I was a child, I, unfortunately, I was um, subjected to. Um, some long-term sexual abuse um, with a friend of the family which was pretty challenging Um, Mm -hmm. and it was in terms of the time in my life it was early to to kind of mid-youth I think it made the whole hormonal change and growing up very very difficult and my way of, of dealing with it at the time and probably for the next 10 to 15 years was really that of um dissociation um and, and which is not the right I'm not suggesting that's the right way to deal no. with something but it was obviously a protective measure that my brain had put into place to try and protect myself from that uh from being hurt too much um so I guess I was fortunate that I always was able to function um throughout my life and and on reflection now what it probably gave me was um a, a lot of grit um and some emotional hardness um yeah which probably f- very much helped um in my military uh career yeah. um to be able to flick the switch and to keep on moving keep on thinking when things are really tough i think the main change came when Actually, I started to talk about it with Kirsten, and she encouraged me, and and a mum encouraged me to to go and get help. Um, uh, from from a professional, and I've, I've been seeing a psychotherapist now for um, a number of years, yeah. um, and that that has really changed and saved my life. Um, yeah. And I'd and encourage anybody, you know, no matter where you are on, on that journey, to not just push it inside, because yeah. it's always going to have a, an impact, um, a negative impact generally, is to to reach out and get help. Um, yeah. You know, the, the number of people that have been um, affected by similar things um, to me or similar, you know, abuses uh, is quite high, um, you know, and... You know, and and there are fantastic people out there. Um, you know, my the, the person that I speak to has saved and changed my life. Uh, I I couldn't recommend that highly enough.
0: You come to Edinburgh as a student, and you're in. Harriet, what can you describe the frustration of living in halls and knowing where the city was at a distance? What was that like?
1: Okay, yeah, I mean, the halls of residence, you know, coming away from it was just brilliant to leave home, leave, um, leave my parents, and and be independent and get up to the halls of residence. But it, it will thin pretty fast. I mean, it's a pretty drab yeah. um, campus, really, yeah. and it's not it's not that alive. Um, So to move into um, the middle of Edinburgh was brilliant, Um, and I loved it. I love, I I I really like Edinburgh, although I've probably grown away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, it's changed so much since uh,
0: we were students. It's massively uh, different
1: as a as a physical space. It was beautiful. Yeah, Um, yeah, I feel like. Socially and and politically, I'm I'm creeping away from where Edinburgh's is at. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, So that that side of it's changed, but I mean, I, I loved it and I remember it very fondly.
0: Yeah, whereabouts would you hang out in Edinburgh? Did, did you go to like um, the clubbing scene in Edinburgh? Because I know you, you enjoy the music of the dance floor. <laughs> um, yeah, which where, <laughs> where did you discover <laughs> dance music, and how did you did you explore clubs the clubbing scene in Edinburgh as well?
1: Yeah, uh, Wilkie House, man. Wilkie Hoos. Ah, and, Wilkie uh, Hoos.
0: Yeah, gosh, right? In
1: Edinburgh. Yeah, no, I was. To be honest, I was a bit of a dancer, and I, I loved it. Um, yeah. You know, but I was at the trashy places as well. Not, not all the good. Not the, the Bell Century Two Thousand and Wilkie House. Um yeah. So it's it, it was yeah Century Two Thousand. Been there, mate. Oh. Been there. Um <laughs> you know, and yeah, um, I guess certainly in my younger years, um, and. The first couple of years of university was, you know, doing that, and I m- managed to kind of shoehorn my carcass into slightly more grown-up uh, kind of um, sport, uh later on towards the end of my my degree. But um, yeah.
0: I uh, yeah I um I wasn't very much part of the clubbing scene. I'd never been, I've never i always i enjoyed dance music, and I, I enjoyed uh, writing dance music as a teenager very badly, uh, which I still carry on to this day, but I don't tell anyone about. But uh, <laughs> yes, uh, uh, and uh, I just uh, I, I I just enjoyed seeing people together in these clubs, but I just never felt part of it. It was like I I this is all right, but uh, I I know I was more sitting in, in pubs nattering and talking shite oh, yeah. to to prog rock, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you no, know, I think um, I was always on in my own headspace, and the music—I just, yeah, it was kind of, you know, it's it's quite distract, yeah, it's quite distracting, you know, yeah. and and it's um, quite dissociative as well. Yeah. And I think I quite enjoyed that, you know. Yeah. I'd, be, I'd be terrible if I started on some dissociative type um, illegal drug. I, I would sure. never get off it. But yeah, uh, um, no, I, I that yeah, that, and I miss it, you know. There's yeah. something about dance music that I miss. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs>
0: Before you went into the army was that when um you started uh, in the belly in places like that or was
1: yeah that- so jenny heiress um the late jenny heiress yeah uh, now unfortunately but um i i had actually met um, jenny through my cousin uh diana when i was about 14 or 15 we went and um, was my first kind of holiday on my own um with a friend of mine i went to austria and i met jenny out in austria um and we kept in contact because of Um, My cousin, yeah, she was looking for someone to do kind of part-time shifts and then the belly caffeine mm-hmm. um, just until Cross there. And, and yeah, so I started doing a bit of that along with my degree and, and it was cool. I, I really, I Can really Can you liked
0: describe it. it for us? What was, because I remember I'd always walked past, it was in, uh, up towards the King's Theatre in Edinburgh on off Lothian Road. And I, I always remember walking past it going, oh, I must go in, must go in. And I never did. I was always go to Lupe Pinto's up the road to get some nice chilli spice or something like that. And I never yeah. went in. I kept meaning to, kept meaning to.
1: Well, it was a, it was a, it kind of well at the start it was a south african kind of or southern african based kind of cafe and delicatessen um we had a few seats um, inside and we also did um takeaway sandwiches and things outside but and it, it was pretty cool i have to say i don't know how i managed to to get in there to work cuz i didn't fit the cool brigade but the, the we used to wear bandanas and there was a lot of um, kind of genuine african kind of artwork and and also the music was was fantastic we we played a lot of world music and a lot of um obviously african music um in the main but from we used to play you know a lot of different uh genres of world music it was it was great um and it was the vibe was just brilliant it was really relaxed um we had some great regular customers um and i met a lot of great people there that, that are still friends today you know so uh, you know, it was brilliant.
0: Yeah, no, that's fab. It, uh, it's lovely because it, 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 uh, I'm conscious of it, and several people have talked about it. And it's uh, <clears throat> just in conversation with people, it just seemed to be a very iconic place at that particular time as well. It's,
1: mm, it was, yeah. yeah. That part of Edinburgh was great. It was, I, I, I don't know, It can. that was maybe a bit of a change for me. It was quite a creative place, Cross, because yeah, yeah, you had the, yeah, you had the King's Theatre up the road, um, just a few doors up the road, and then straight across you had the you, uh, the Cameo Cinema as well. That's right. Um, so yeah, it was, and so there, yeah, there was some pretty pretty interesting folk about, and it was a nice place to work.
0: I remember going for my first ever date to the Cameo Cinema, and it was a, oh, a <laughs> I know, I, I had a date at university, just the one mind But um, And it was a, a Norwegian girl Admit met at a party, a, a friend's birthday party And uh, we went to the late night movie uh, to see, you know, get, you, you, when you guess which movie it was And I figured out it was Casablanca And I thought, oh yeah, Beezer, I'll take a girl to Casablanca at midnight, <laughs> Yaha. ha! And Brilliant So, t- so I took her, to this, uh, took her to see Casablanca, she fell asleep, I fell asleep <laughs> And we said goodnight at the end of that. Was and it was like, oh man! So, oh dear, never mind. Yeah, it's. A, I hope she's happy now. Whenever she is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, brilliant. No, I love that part of town. The... So, um, right, how did you then step into the army itself? What was the point where you went? Okay, this is what I'm going to do.
1: Well, I think uh, because I had this RAF goal, uh, the military was already kind of there as a as a thing, and because I I did enjoy the the officer training course. Um, it, it was kind of just a natural progression, um, and I, I didn't. I, I managed to drag my carcass through my degree and pass, which mm. was good. But yeah, I, I was definitely focused on on joining the military. Which, yeah, uh, you know, it, w-
0: it was an interesting decision. Yeah, where was your first posting? Where did you train?
1: So went went to went to Sandhurst. Um, wow,
0: gosh, what was yeah. that like?
1: yeah oh, hogwarts with guns i think uh, <laughs> you might have, you might have given me that i think yeah, that expression but uh, possibly no it was it, it, it sounds too
0: good for me i'm sorry <laughs> yeah.
1: it was oh it was a funny place Do you know um some of the social stereotypes of the types of people that ended up being there did ring true quite a lot um you know it it, it was interesting and again i was very physically fit at the time i was before I went, I was doing a lot of adventure racing mm. um, and, a, you know, a lot of running, cycling, kayaking, that kind of thing. Um, so the physical side of, of it was fine. But I, I kind of didn't realize how cerebral it would be. Uh, it would right. become um, in terms of getting pushed, you know, in terms of planning and, and assessment and things like that. It was pretty demanding. So that was a year which, yeah, was, was pretty tough and then after that basically straight into my because I I joined the Royal Scots so the which is now the Royal Regiment of Scotland um, which is an infantry uh, regiment so I went to do my platoon commander's battle course at, at Warminster
0: after that gosh what did you learn there what was what were the kind of key learnings of that was it a bit forward momentum was it about how how can you define it because I I'm not military at all
1: yeah so so sandhurst um is there's quite a lot um on the ethicality of of leadership um on having the right morals um making the right decision what it means to be an officer, what the privilege and respect you need to have yeah. um f- you know f- for the for that position where p- potentially um, commanding leading and, and and managing um people. You know when the lives are in danger
0: in and, war zones, and yeah. You
1: know, so it, it was interesting because I was a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a black sheep. I didn't really subscribe to the the whole bullshit side of things yeah. um, in yeah. terms of um, drill and the kind of enforced um, group and uh, discipline. Yeah. But it it was hammered into you. It. it really yeah. was. And and by the end of it, you know, although. It was it was it, it was within you know it was it was it was more than skin deep it was right inside you, yeah. Um uh, so you, you so left Sandhurst and then if you were at Sandhurst you depending on which branch of the army you joined um, you went off to do a specialist course from anywhere from two months to a year depending on what the branch was and the infantry one was this platoon commander's battle course at Warminster which was a, a very a very tough course um, yeah. physically and um, cerebrally, I guess, where the first part of the course was all about planning, training and live firing, um, and the, uh, the the second part of the course was really about um, tactics, you know, and developing your set of skills to go out and lead people, uh, lead a platoon, um, you know, in a war zone, potentially.
0: Yeah. Gosh,
1: so, I mean, I, I can, again, the, the physical side of things, I, I thrived um, on it because I was quite strong and determined. determined. Um, so I, I, I guess I, I, en- I enjoyed it and I did quite well, which was probably just as well because at the time, this is when the, the second Iraq war just started yeah. um, when I was on that course. Yeah. Um, so I finished the course on a Friday and on, on Monday I was um, floating to Basra to meet my my new platoon um, of thirty guys, um, you know, as a, a twenty-two year old, twenty-three year old would have been, yeah. um, was quite daunting.
0: Yeah, so straight into the practice from the theory, and that's how. So what? What was the experience of being in Basra at that start of that insane war? <laughs> what was that? How, is there any way you can describe that at all? Because it can't. It, it's the most complex of situations, I imagine.
1: Yeah. So, so the the main the the main part of the war and the kind of occupation had had basically happened. And yes, there there were there was a bit of resistance. Yeah. Um. Before I turned up, when when I turned up, it was actually quite a a reasonably stable time. Um. And and there was that's great. Yeah. There, there's a few things to say. I mean, it, it was such an interesting. Um, time and reflecting back in it is, you know, almost even even more interesting now. Yeah. But there was a lot of hope actually. Really? Um, there was hope um, from the from the Iraqi people themselves that, that we were there to do a good thing. There was a lot of that, yeah. um, and from us as well, there was a lot of hope that we could actually do something positive. Um, although I think on reflection, you know. We were fighting a losing battle, so to speak, with yes. trying to do something positive because the, the the political aims were well were one a lie yeah, <laughs> and exactly. and two were misplaced and yeah. and not thought through properly. So and and that that came to me that it all started to kind of crumble. The whole emphasis of why we were there, because obviously there was the weapons of mass destruction, and that was the argument that was basically tipped the balance and and, um, pushed us into it. And and when when I got out to theatre, we had all these briefings from the the UK and the Ministry of Defence mission all the way down to our own mission. And suddenly the weapons of mass destruction just didn't feature at all. It had all just evaporated. And I remember saying um, to one of my commanders, oh, what about our... um, uh, chemical warfare protection kits? Do we need to carry that? That kind of thing. And it was like, oh no, you don't need that, you know. And th- th- there's none of that. So it was evident immediately that um, we'd been sold a bogey, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, which you know does absolute, you know, it, it 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 did affect the the trust in the system. I mean, yeah. And and you were very much brainwashed to trust the system, and uh, yeah. you know, in the army and. And and that's so that you know the mistrust and that started to creep in at that point.
0: Yes, of course. Before we go further down that line, um, what is the connection between you as a soldier coming into? The, I guess the liberation might have been what the term would have been to liberate them from the tyranny of of the previous regime. What is the connection between you as a soldier and the people of a country? What did that feel like? Uh, the, was you know how how was that meeting? People whose reality yeah. you were coming to, to make better.
1: Um, do you know? I felt pretty connected to the Iraqi people actually, and and, and the main obviously um, on a personal level, they, they were great fun. They had a yeah. cracking sense of humour. Yeah. It was the first time I'd been in in, in an, an Arabic country, so that was very interesting and and it, it was an eye opener. Um, um, but I, I felt a real personal connection to the people. I guess what was interesting was was coming back and meeting some of the same people a few years on. Um, Amazing! Wow. And and things had changed so dramatically yeah. in terms of the vibe and and, and where we we're at. And and what was really important, I think, for me, you know, there were stories of, um, and and certainly acts of of people. Losing the moral courage in terms of you know helping um, the local yeah. population, and all of the training on the ethics and and moral courage and all all of that and self discipline and, and group discipline all came into play in theatre. It really yeah. did, and 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 that then made sense to me. Yeah, um, because because I then I then put myself into that very strongly and and you know really. I think, and it just said to me how how important leadership and moral leadership was, um, and if it, and if it isn't there, it is easy to creep away and, into a place where we shouldn't be going. Um, but yeah, I, I, I never lost that, and um, I, I think it's in in times of war and, and that kind, and or in times of difficulty, keeping your humanity and always trying to um, take take a human approach to everything is is just so important. Um, yeah
0: how long did you stay with the army um, for how many years were you in so I was in
1: the army for five years um, so in, in that fight, I did a, a nearly a six-month tour is my first tour because I met met the tour already out there um, after I left my platoon commanders battle course mm-hmm. then I had some time back in the UK um, for about a year and a half just training and we um, were actually meant to be going out to a, a kind of low-level tour in Northern Ireland.
0: Oh, right. wow. um,
1: uh, but we were re-rolled again and put through the Iraq training package um, uh, in 2006, I think it was, and we went back for another six-month tour um, to the same kind of area uh, just south of Basra right. to do a, a second six-month tour.
0: And did you have a different specialism with, at that time? Were you kind of still in platoon battle command stuff or what were you? So,
1: well, I'd been promoted twice since then. I went and every officer goes in the army as a second lieutenant. I'd been promoted to lieutenant. And then, again, I'd been um, promoted to captain by this stage. So mm. I did various roles, um, but my main role was um, as a, a company operations officer. So I would be running a small kind of command cell and running operations um, out in the grounds. Um, One of the roles was protecting a large um, logistical camp um, and then um, protecting convoys of of either military equipment or or civilian equipment with with another role, and and a a little bit of a a liaison role as well. also managed to get up to Baghdad and work um, a little bit in the... Wow! Uh, American headquarters um, up in Baghdad, which was a bit of an eye opener as well. Yeah,
0: what was um, Baghdad like?
1: What would, uh,
0: it's a city oh, that's always been a fascinating, very,
1: oh, f- fantastic um, uh, place. You, you know, <laughs> just despite all the shock and awe and, and and all the all the ruin that that um, we man- the occupation managed to cause. Um, you know, a magnificent city, really. But very strange. Um, there was a kind of the green zone, which was mm-hmm. the centre around um, the uh, Saddam's palace in Baghdad, um, which was effectively a sort of semi secure place. And then the red zone was was um, everywhere um, around that. Um, yeah, the, it was it was cowboy territory in some ways, especially wow. the green zone. You had um, lots and lots of and private security contractors. You had oh yeah,
0: scary stuff. Uh,
1: yeah, tooled up and mm. and ready to go. And you know, um, and then you had other nationalities. The, obviously, the, the the U.S. Army was up there. The Marines. There was quite a lot of conflict between different parts of the yeah. uh, of the same system, as well as obviously the insurgency itself. And I think the main difference with with that tour was the the insurgency had really. Um, taken holds um, uh, by that point, yeah. and so the the vibe was entirely different, and and it was hard to keep your head up um, that you were doing the right thing. And that for me at that point, um, uh, you know, yes, I, I, I wasn't a politician, and so it wasn't my choice no. at that point to to go. But I, I felt I did feel at that point, what what are we doing here, and what are we achieving?
0: What was then? the the point where you decided okay that's enough of the army when when did you decide to move on
1: so it was yeah there was i think there was a couple of things i'd actually joined the army to probably make that my career um, a a life career but i kind of realized that there was a misuse of power going on um, within the Army, in my view that um senior ranking officers had far too much power and actually were were quite career focused for themselves and had lost some of the moral courage and the ethics that really i 'd really taken on board by this point yeah um, and there was one particular incident um which happened where a soldier of the the, the regiment had, had left a piece of um, top secret equipment out on the on the ground oh um, because they had had to extract from a, um, a position quite quickly because of some enemy action, and they left a bit of this electronic countermeasures equipment, which used to disrupt the um, ro- remote control um, improvised explosive devices, the roadside bombs. And he'd left this out in the ground, which was a bit of a drama um, because it was kind of top secret to the point of it was for UK eyes only. We didn't share the information with our other allies like the US or anything like that. So there, there had to be a mission to go back in and, and, and um, get this piece of equipment, which I, as a company operations officer, had started to put in place. And, and normally what happens when bits of equipment are left out in the ground, you have to do quite a considered planned operation to go and get it's that piece of equipment. Back. Yeah. Absolutely. Because our experience in Northern Ireland and in other theatres were that bit of equipment would probably get booby trapped um, with explosives or, or there might be an ambush set up when someone would go and pick that piece of equipment up, it would either go boom or, or certainly set an ambush off. So I started putting in place a, a kind of cordon operation, and my intention was to get the bomb disposal and to protect the area, cordon it off, get bomb disposal and make sure they were happy with with the bit of equipment, and then extract the bit of equipment. Um, however, my commanding officer's um, view on on what was to happen was entirely different, and 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 we came to a bit of a clash. Um, so yeah. that that resulted in the commanding officer saying, "Oh no, we'll just send the guy that left out in the ground to go back oh, no. and get it." And and I said, "No, no, we, we that we, we can't do that. We just can't no. do that. I, I don't want to be part of that." And anyway, I, tr- I I I tried to explain my position um to him, and he wasn't having any of it. Me and another friend of mine, another captain, tried to get some. Um, more senior-ranking officers to yeah. try and come along um, to to try and persuade him to do the right thing, but no, it wasn't wasn't to happen. Um, so that's what did happen. The the soldier that left a bit of equipment went out, picked it up, and and and, and fortunately, it didn't go boom. Um, but to me, uh, that's that, not a that risk worth taking. No, it was it, it it was kind of the nail in the, that was one of a few things that happened, and it was the nail in the coffin for me. I thought. Do you know it's this this job's too important to start doing that kind of thing Yeah. and the the, the rationale that was given was that it was it was regimental pride that we couldn't involve another organization to go and do that which was just absolute rubbish i always felt that it was the he, he had a um a, a career progression uh, boards coming up and i thought it was much more about that yeah. um and there was another few decisions and also I wanted a lot, you know, I wanted a bit more freedom a bit more independence yeah. um, in my life. And, and all of these things added up together to make me l- leave the army.
0: You talked about how deep the training is in, uh, a soldier how it gets right inside you it's not a surface level how did you come from hyper vigilance even back to normal life in notional city streets what did you do how what did you end up working as
1: my mull connection had actually started um when i was in the army right um so i actually pretty much left the army went on a wee holiday to corsica oh, to kind nice. of uh, wind down which was cracking another nice island. Um and then you know, I'd been visiting Mull quite quite regularly and and uh, by this point I'd met Kirsten yes. um my partner yes. and basically moved up Lock sort and Barrel in the back of her um Peugeot car um up to Mull. Um oh, which yeah was was a, a real change and was interesting. Yeah. And 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 the transition was difficult, I have to say. So yeah you're quite fired up when you're in the army and there's there's quite a lot of support there that yeah. you you're you're appraised quite a lot um on your performance and you know you you you're heavily managed um and you know in real life you're not and and Indeed. and just because you've been in a, a captain in the army and done this that and the next thing it doesn't it doesn't mean anything um and and neither it should it's just another job and and I found the I, I found it difficult. I, yeah. I, I found it difficult leaving, and I, and it really made me feel for a, a lot of other people that come out of the forces, and and, oh, and a lot of them fall fat, flat flat in your face if you look yeah. at the statistics about homelessness uh. in the UK. A lot of them are are ex military folk. It's interesting. I you know I had a degree behind me, but it was still difficult. Anyway, yeah. so um, my the first uh, job I had was um working at mediterranean oh, no way. Uh, in Gosh. salem the wee italian restaurant ah,
0: fantastic uh,
1: kirsten was working there and right. she kind of wrote me into it and i said oh sure i'll come along and i remember having a set of marigolds on and i had my hand hand down the cludgy cleaning it and yeah. and i thought man this has been a funny few months from machine gun <laughs> machine guns to marigolds was my uh the phrase that I used um, that's the
0: title of your autobiography uh, i think you'll find yeah
1: absolutely and um do you know uh, yeah. It, um and then ever since then I've had a right portfolio of things I've I've been up to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And how how important has Moll been in normalizing life outside of army and 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 bringing you back to a life outside of the theater of war? How has that been just what has Moll meant to you so far?
1: Well, I think well rurally moving back to a rural place light mall helped a lot you know yeah. and i and I, I've, I've you know i've always striven to 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 live somewhere rurally so that that was a big thing but also that that has its that's that puts us can put a spotlight on on things as well you know oh yes uh, the eye of zaron on your uh <laughs> totally your, on your problems your history yeah. and and your, your flaws exactly um can certainly happen
0: yeah
1: and uh, but you know, Kirsten. I have to say, Kirsten was kind of instrumental as well, and and um, you know, helping me transition from being quite a strange, yeah. black and white, right wing, uh, <laughs> military shits, and and into something different, you know, and yeah. and changing entirely on a,
0: a nationalist lot. trot. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Nothing
1: wrong uh, with that. You yeah. so, know, these two things have, have been instrumental in, in me kind of. Yeah. Finding and and loving a life on Mull.
0: After Mediterranean, is that when you started to get involved in event stuff?
1: Yeah, so I did. I, I think I spent about, it was only about nine months uh, I spent on Mull. And I, because of doing quite a lot of events um, before and, and during the army, I was quite interested in, in the whole events industry. I managed to see an advert i can't remember where but for a company called events and activities which was based in killin and which subsequently uh, became called wild fox events um and i I took a job with them the emphasis of that um company was designing building and operating large-scale kind of charity sporting outdoor events to raise money for various charitable causes so I spent, I think, two or three years um, doing that and kind of coming and going for Mull, but mostly working
0: in Killeen. Since you've been here and since you sort of left events, you've had other jobs as well. Can you, can you say, because the breadth of, this is something that I think is always interesting, is the breadth of jobs that people have had. What other things have you done since you've been here?
1: Oh, um, I've been an electrician's apprentice. Huh? Uh, <laughs> which uh, not for very long I've I've Wait uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I've I've done a bit of uh, laboring on uh building sites um but I also worked um for a shellfish company uh for a couple of years and before joining the ambulance service I, I um helped manage Ambellan restaurant just along by Calgary there yeah uh, so nice um, and then i've obviously taken my the job that i have now which is with the ambulance service
0: so how yeah that's, can you explain to us what was your impetus to go into the ambulance service why why did you choose to do that so
1: i think i'd well i'd I'd started to develop quite a bit of knowledge on first aid and and quite a lot of interest in it um i guess it started in the army mm-hmm. um with battlefield first aid but actually it was pretty rudimentary um mm. back then um and i started to teach a little bit in the army um all right gosh and then um with just first aid and, and various um of military um topics and then when i went to Cullen, i joined the Cullen mountain rescue team
0: ah oh, fantastic
1: as well and a, and a good friend of mine uh john morris who's actually ex um ref he was teaching first aid at work courses as well so um, I ended up doing my instructor's training for that and obviously um practicing a bit with the Mountain Rescue um and teaching first aid. Um so it was always kind of there. Um so when i when I moved back to Mull, I had that as a thing. I never I'd never really thought about joining the ambulance. And then Joyce had said to me, Oh, there's this job going on the on the uh on the ambulance and I said okay. Um, she said, oh, "Would you consider?" it? And I said, hey, why not?" Um, Brilliant. And but for me, I guess it was kind of you know it, it, it's another pub- public service organization. It's it has a little, I, I suppose it has a taint of the military in it, but it's well, but it's entirely different. Regimented,
0: um, yeah, I guess. And
1: and uh, you know it, it felt like a fit to me, so I thought I'll I'll give it a bash and see if I can get a job, and 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 I did. I managed to. Bluff again? Uh, Not a bluffing at all. Service.
0: None of that. I've I've seen you in operation. I've seen you with the rubber gloves on. You're good. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, where did you start within the? So you, did you start as a driver, and then you've worked up through the roles? Is that right?
1: So I started. I started on the um, student ambulance technicians course. Um, so I went to Glasgow Cali uni for uh, for a while, and then did a year of kind of on the job training. And then at the end of that year, um, I qualified as an ambulance technician. And then I went basically straight on to my paramedic course, which was another kind of year to 18 months in and out of university and then um, some on, on the job um, kind of practical training as well. And then qualified as a as a paramedic, I think, what, about three years ago now, I mm-hmm. think it is.
0: Right. Yeah. Amazing. And it's, yeah, It before that, how many paramedics were there on the island? Do you remember at all? So,
1: yeah, it was an interesting time and it was probably quite f- fortunate for me because the there was two different shifts in terms of um, the roles that were on the ambulance and mall. One of the shifts was led by a paramedic and uh, an ambulance care assistant um, and the other shift was le- led by an ambulance technician and an ambulance care assistant. So there was, a, I guess, a, a disparity in terms of clinical skill and decision making between the two shifts and there was a view within the public here and and also within the ambulance service that they they wanted to make the two different shifts equivalent um, and yeah. so that's i kind of i i got a golden ticket to go straight from yeah. ambulance technician onto my uh, paramedic course and then obviously take take the the shift as a as a paramedic to make the two sides of the shift equal
0: it sounds like all of your experience in the military has been perfect for for the situation we find ourselves in at present that's it's just really struck me that i was chatting with fee Quarmby the other day and she's saying you know and other people saying it's, it's great that you're in the position that you're in because you have a, such a broad sphere of knowledge on these things it's it's remarkable how do you feel about the the current situation in terms of of what we're heading into what we might see how do you you obviously feel prepared? I'm putting words in your mouth, but um, <laughs> what what is there anything you want to say about the current position that we're in?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a few things. the The first thing to say is that when you join the ambulance service, and and I think when you when you're part of the NHS and the wider NHS, you, you expect to be surrounded by infectious diseases. Um, yeah. So from from that perspective. We all know what to do. Um and now we, we do have the right level of um equipment. So but it, but it is also quite frightening. Um yeah, uh, and and it and it's makes you realise how how fragile some parts of the system are if if we're overwhelmed by something. Um so you know yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I, I feel comfortable on a day to day basis, but I, I want to be able to help as many people as possible. Some of it's not within my control. So I'd I really urge people to listen to the advice um, help us help you, um, mm-hmm. because without the social distancing, without pe- pe- people taking common sense decisions and without um, flattening the curve, yeah, you know the situation, especially in a place like Mal, could be pretty severe, and we need your help. You know, that's yeah. that's kind of what I'd like to say. Yes, yeah, yeah. Family life is, is great. I mean, I, f- I feel. I think we all feel privileged to to live where we live. I'm I'm really proud proud of Evie, who yeah. is a bit of a, a mixture of, of Kirsten and Ica. You know, she does, she certainly doesn't get the musical side of things from me. Um, uh, she gets that from Kirsten. She's very into the outdoors and she's very active physically, which obviously she gets a little bit from from myself. She's very fortunate that where we live that she can use that to exploit all. Um, all of these um, you know, opportunities that, yeah. that exist on a doorstep. You know, we're 200 metres from the sea, she can go for a swim, you yeah. know, um, get in the kayak, go up the hills, yeah. you know, she's so lucky. Um,
0: and you've also got your yeah. grandpa- her grandparent tan- uh, close to hand yeah, as well. So,
1: yeah, we've got uh, Granny just right next door. Which is, which is brilliant as well. Obviously, we're social distancing at the moment.
0: Yes, waving to <laughs> each other.
1: The situation, yeah, um, talking through glass only. We live in a really nice place to be able to, en, en, you know, enjoy ourselves. It's really nice, you know, um, yeah. to be so connected to, to family.
0: Yeah. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time. That's, um, I wanted you to be the 50th as what you do is so significant for all of us. So thank you so much.
1: No worries. Thanks a lot, Alice. Right. That's really nice talking to you. All right.
0: We'll see you soon. Cheers. See you, mate. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Richard. As ever, it was great to catch up in Natter, and I look forward to doing so again once all this is by and by. If, as a listener, you've been affected by any of the issues identified in this episode, please have a look at the links on the website, which offer more information on agencies that are there to help. Now, I've tried to think how to mark the 50th episode in a way that explains what I've been trying to do with these podcasts, so some of it you'll have heard before uh, if you've listened to other episodes. In many ways, I've been navigating by instinct chatting to folk I know who will be interesting, people who have something to say. So often when I approach people to talk to, they say, oh, you don't want to talk to me, I'm not interested at all. And that's pretty much always when I know I'm onto a good one. There's no game plan with these podcasts. I record them and release them in an order that seems roughly to flow to my mind. Because of a connection in one episode, it seems maybe appropriate to release another one following that, perhaps where there's a slight crossover of themes, locations or interest. The inspiration for the project came from several sources. Many years ago I was on tour on the Isle of Easdale and while everyone else went out to the pub I decided I fancied a night in the accommodation with a book I'd spotted on the shelf. The book was The Voice of the Bard by Timothy Neat. Timothy's work blew me away. Here was an account of people's lives and creativity presented in an intimate way. Here were the voices of people I felt I knew and could relate to. People telling tales of places and times gone by, yet places and lives that very much had something to say to the moment. I gobbled up Timothy's books, especially the When I Was Young series. Another inspiration was the connections I'd made with people as I'd come to settle on Mull. When I came here originally, I thought it would just be for a couple of years. Fourteen years on, I'm very happy to say that I'm still here. Just for a bit of context, this is how I ended up coming here. So working in the theatre as an actor, writer and director, i performed shows and shoes all over the place. And after grinding away in various productions, something kind of magical happened. A producer had picked up on one of my own productions, a two-man show that I'd created with a friend. They'd seen it in Edinburgh at the Fringe and had spoken to me afterwards. They never gave their second name, though. I gave them the company email address and then forgot all about it. The Fringe passed and I went on tour with another company around the UK playing a drunken banjo player who was haunted by more than one kind of spirit. One day, several months after the Fringe, I checked my company email. There hadn't been much in the way of correspondence following the Fringe, so I ignored the inbox for a while. Sat in an internet cafe on the corner of the square at the centre of Nottingham, I saw that there were a good handful of emails from someone whose surname was Lloyd Webber. How odd, I thought. Well, it turned out this Lloyd Webber person was a producer who wanted to put my show on in London and New York. I couldn't believe it. In many ways, it was what you wait for as a theatre person, someone picking up on your work and taking it up to the next level, maybe even the level beyond that. The producer asked to see the show again, so my friend and I mounted the show in January at the Etcetera Theatre in London, and thanks to our good friend Zina, to whom I will remain ever indebted. The show was picked up by the producer and her partner and we were set to start working on it for its new lease of life. Then something happened that I've never really been able to understand. My friend, who I'd been performing the show with, disappeared from contact. Totally disappeared. I knew he was alive as his girlfriend said that he was alive but wouldn't talk to me. The production died on the spot, and I was left not knowing what to do. I was gutted. I'd lost a very dear friend with whom I'd had such a it's brilliant series of adventures who outshone me on stage, whose perspective and view I cherished most dearly. My mate was gone to me, but so was the work that was to be lined up for the next year or even years to come. I ended up, back in Danoon doing odd theatre jobs on the road here and there. Work went through a dry patch and I found myself twiddling my thumbs in the Cowell Peninsula. And it was at this point that a job with Mal Theatre came up. They were looking for an education officer. I'd been to Mull several times as a young person, and had really enjoyed it, but i never thought of coming here to live. I applied for the job, and got it. This brought me to the island, and I settled in Bredalbin Street, in Tobermory. I loved my first house, although it was haunted to buggery. I spent two years working as Mull Theatre's education officer, working closely with Argyll College in the development of their drama courses as well. While there, I met many wonderful people, most of whose friendship I still cherish. Living in Tobermory, I got to know lots of people in the community and very quickly I started to feel at home. There was one connection in particular that made me feel most welcome and that was the time I got to spend with Duncan McGilp. Duncan and I played fiddle together at the Mull Fiddlers and my favourite moments there were when we'd be playing away and Duncan would lay down his fiddle and just start to sing as we all carried on with the tune. I remember slipping into harmony as he sang A Yalla Van, The White Swan. It's one of my most cherished memories of living in Tobermory. If we met on the boat or in the street, Duncan would always spend a bit of time with me and tell me little nuggets of information about the island, the people and its history. It was magical. So, when I came around to the idea of chatting to people for the podcasts, of course it was Duncan that I thought of first. I'm so, so lucky that he had the time and the inclination to share some of his tales with me. In many ways, the foundations of this podcast are based on his inspiration. Another route of the podcast was through frustration. While these islands are exceptional holiday spots, I mean, what more do you wish for? you got beaches to dream of, space and abundance, beautiful places to stay, incredible places to eat with the freshest produce you could ever dream of. I started to notice a reductive mindset in how some of the people coming here were starting to classify the islands and their people in their heads and out loud. It was as if these communities were there to be consumed as a product for their entertainment and little else. Some people seem to want Two tickets to Tartanland, thank you very much. This came to a head for me when speaking to a friend one day who said that a visitor had asked them if they go home to Oban at the end of the day. And it was almost like saying, do you switch the lights off when the last visitor leaves? Now I'm sure if you're listening to this and you're not immediately connected to the communities featured in this podcast series, this will be the last thing in your mind and I thank you for this. I'm not against tourists by any means at all. They are the motor which drives the engine of our dominant economy. And without the presence of people who want to come here, so many of us would be in trouble, as the current situation shows. In response to this reductive mindset, I thought it vital to shine a light on the incredible diversity of lives that people have led who choose to make their lives here in the communities where they grew up or the places where they've chosen to make their home. The aim of this podcast is to celebrate the lives of the people we speak to. To offer testimony of their lives and a moment in time. To try and open up aspects of the incredible depths of lives that are here on Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm so, so grateful to each and every person that we've, that we've spoken to. The fact that they're willing to spend time with me and share their experiences in such deeply personal ways is a total honour. I couldn't be more honoured than to spend time with each and every person and to listen to what they have to say That they then let me share it with you, the listener, is amazing. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, all 50 of you. I do this for you, the listener, too. In talking to the participants, I try and anticipate what you may be interested in hearing. In editing their voices, I'm conscious of the funny noises that we all make as we talk, and I try to edit them out, especially for one friend who can't stand noises like this. I'm conscious that there are so many communities around the island that I've not yet had a chance to catch up with, for which I apologise, and I'll look to rectify this in the coming months. I'm also conscious of those who have passed on, whose stories have passed on with them. I don't know if they'd have wanted to talk to me, but I know if they had, there would have been a wealth of knowledge in there that would have illuminated different aspects of lives lived here, as seen through their own unique filters, which would have been very much worth championing. How I would have loved to have chatted to Johnny Payton for this series. Someone whose company I cherished, and whose perspective I always very much appreciated, especially when it challenged my own. There are those who I've spoken to that have passed, too. Duncan and Zelda, both much appreciated and loved by their communities. Thank you to the people of other island communities who have spoken to the podcast as well, to my friends in Colonsey and Tyree. It's still my ambition to reach more island and rural communities, But I need to find maybe another vehicle to do so. That's perhaps something for another podcast series in another day. The connections this podcast has made stagger me. The listenership across the world is quite incredible. There are regular listeners in the US, Australia, New Zealand, Italy, Spain, France, the Netherlands, Germany, Brunei, Sweden, Hong Kong, China, Cambodia, Turkey, India, Greece, Japan and dozens of other countries. People listen whilst out running, driving to work, having a bath, or even going to bed of an evening. I hope these connections continue to grow and build. These are stories of the past and present, and in identifying small details of a moment, they offer up a bigger picture of the world at a specific moment in time. These are stories worth listening to. I need to say thank you to several people who I sound ideas off of from time to time or just natter with to try and understand what it is that I'm actually doing. Gus Stewart has been a constant touchstone whose time and opinion I value most dearly. And also Colin Morrison, Andrina Duffin, John Mohn and Charlie Hogg. Most importantly of all, I have to thank my family for their support and patience in the creation of these podcasts. I spend so many hours with my headphones on at my desk. The space they give me to do this is greatly appreciated. There are still so so many more tales to tell. There are so many more people to talk to. There are other languages to be spoken too. I in a of. I hope to do an episode in Gaelic someday. right There you go. That's episode fifty and a wee bit of the rationale behind the work. If you want to support the podcast please feel free to click the donate tab on what we do in the winter.com but don't worry if you can or you don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened and went on a journey with us than not. And thank you to our monthly supporters and also to Ver. I really, really appreciate it. If you could leave a star review on whichever platform you listen to, I'd be really grateful. It just helps to spread the word about the project and makes these stories available to more and more listeners. And thank you to all of you who reach out to say hello. It absolutely makes my day to hear from you thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. than Tang, Shinakadei.